All right, let's shift gears here a little bit. And as Pastor Kenny talked about, we are in our stewardship series called Treasuring Christ. This is part three. This is part three of our stewardship series. And we're talking about treasuring Christ in the new covenant. And we're going to unpack one question. One question we're going to unpack. Is the act of tithing required in the new covenant? Yeah, we're going to talk about this. But before we get going to that, we're going to have to unpack what the law means and what, what this all means. But just a little bit about my background. Um, my, as many of you guys know, my dad's a gardener. And one of the things that uh, he learned from one of his customers was to send um, uh, his three boys to a private school. So his customers said, hey, Andy, and, uh, if you send them to the school, your boys will learn how to be good people. And it was a Seventh-day Adventist school. Okay, it's on Broadway and, uh, and Muscatel and Temple City and St. Gabriel Academy Elementary. This is just where I grew up. And so it had a big influence on me early on. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And, and, and when 1998 happened, God found me at the University of Southern California, became a believer. And all of a sudden, I'm, uh, I'm part of a church family called Pacific Heritage. Pastor Mike Olson was my first pastor. Layla Olson is his wife. And it was a treasure time, and, but there was a conflict within me. And what that conflict was, it was like, okay, I'm a believer. I love Christ. I, I'm growing in my knowledge of Christ. But we're worshiping on Sunday. You know, Seventh-day Adventists believe that you should worship on Saturday, right? And, and there's things talked about in the Old Testament. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember, it's the seventh day, which is Saturday. Why do we worship on, on, on Sunday, and even other things like dietary rules, there's all kinds of dietary laws that they adhere to, the Jewish dietary rules of not eating pork or any unclean meats. None of this was talked about. So I was like, ah, oh, why is that? I didn't think Pastor Mike was a compromiser or anything like that. But in, in America, why is it that in general we go to church on Sunday? Those are the conflicts I had within me because early on I accepted that the Bible is God's word. But I know there's some things in the Bible that I don't, Obey, and, and all of us would say this, and I'll point out a few examples. So today, we're going to dive into what does it mean to be in the new covenant in the time that we have. So we're going to do like a quick 10,000 feet flyover as we're in the airplane, and we can kind of see the topography and the, the beauty of the land, but we're not going to spend, get lost in the forest, hopefully. And so we're going to learn how to engage in the Old Testament laws as new covenant people. All right, we're going to find out what this means. So today we're going to be out of Matthew 5, uh, uh, 17 through 20. So if you, if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading in the NASB version, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And as you're turning there, a little bit of context. Jesus, our Lord, is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount. He is preaching. Jesus was a preacher. And the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes, are questioning his commitment to the Old Testament. You know, why aren't you commanding uh, your, 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 uh, your uh, disciples to observe the Sabbath? All that. So why aren't they washing their hands? All kinds of things that they're talking to him about. And in essence, um, the scribes and the Pharisees have a stranglehold over religion in, in, in Israel. And they made it an external thing. It's about doing. It was no heart. It was heartless. It was a hollow thing. He calls them a, a, a brood of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. He said, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside the cup is filthy. All you care is about the outside. All you care about is emphasizing the doing. And so... This is where Jesus is combating, and Jesus is reforming what does it mean to have true religion. 
And he preaches on what the essence of what the law and the prophets is about. So we're going to dive in. And Jesus is talking about being salt and light. And then now we're diving into verse 17. So let's rise as we read Matthew uh, 5, verse 17 through 20. Just a few verses, but a lot of stuff packed in there. God's word says this. Jesus is preaching. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19. Whoever then annuls or unbinds or loosens one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, here's the big warning, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for this part of Jesus' sermon. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, We'll be able to preach this, and we will be able to understand what you're saying. And, and not only reach our minds, but uh, dominate and saturate our hearts with truth of who you are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So we have four big points. We're going to quickly go over the first two points. We'll spend more time on point three and four. But the first point is Christ established a new covenant. He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. But to fulfill them, what is the law and the prophets? In a nutshell, the law and the prophets is a, basically a quick, of, quick way of saying everything written in the Old Testament. Remember, as Jesus is preaching right now in Matthew 5, uh, there is no New Testament, right? This is, Matthew is writing this after the fact. So there, but there was the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I am the law. I am the prophets, Jesus is saying. And so, in essence, the law is everything what Moses wrote. First five books of the Bible, there's actually 613 laws, by the way. Not just the Ten Commandments, if you might be thinking that. 613 laws. And the prophets, and all the prophets from Isaiah wrote about the coming of Christ or even supported, hey, you need to obey God. And so the big idea is Jesus establishes a new covenant because he fulfilled it. He fulfilled all of what the Old Testament promises and all those things. And how did he fulfill it? Well, Jesus taught and, and clarifies what it means. So he's coming alongside. He's not contradicting the Old Testament at all, as the, as the scribes and Pharisees were accusing him. No, he's, he's clearly teaching and preaching it and clarifying it. And he lived it perfectly. He, he, he met all the demands. He lived God's holy standard perfectly. And what did he do? He ultimately went to the cross. He went to the cross. He paid the price because none of us in this room could meet the demands of the law. Not, not one of us is perfect. Because if you're able to do the law perfectly, that means you'll be a perfect man or woman or child. And none of us in here are perfect. And Jesus, the perfect one, was sacrificed to pay the price for us. And thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the law because this is what he, the law is about Jesus. He's divine holiness. He's divine perfection. Jesus is the law. If you want to talk about what is the law, the Old Testament about, it's about Jesus. What is the prophets of the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus. And that's what he's saying right here. So Jesus establishes a better promise. 
Because remember, the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant under Moses, blessing was contingent upon your obedience on how well you're able to keep the law. That's what it was. Under the new covenant, it's based on Jesus' faithfulness. We're riding on the backs of Jesus Christ, and that promise is so much better. Point number two, Jesus affirms every word of God. Verse 18 says, for truly, it's like saying, hey, emphasis now, truly, truly, or for truly, listen up. This is, you, this is absolutely concrete. I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, jot, or titter, or I, a tittle, or iota, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Everything that God has created or said will happen. What does it mean until heaven and earth pass away? This is all of creation. When it says heaven, it's not talking about eternal heaven. This is talking about the universe. In essence, as, as, as uh, Pastor Kenny talked about the, the, the finality or the sense of urgency at a funeral or dealing with people who are dying, this whole planet, this whole universe is going to burn up someday. Jesus is starting over. First Peter talks about how everything's going to get burned up. He's going to start a brand new creation. And until that day, everything that God promises or predicts in the Bible is going to happen. So God's word is true. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades. That's talking about creation. But the word of our God stands forever. Eternal things. As Pastor Cain talked about, people are eternal, so is God's word. So Jesus affirms the scriptures. That's point number two. We could absolutely trust it. This is why we preach the Bible. This is why we study the Bible. This is why we obey the Bible. Now, point number three, we're going to take some time here. I know we're going fairly quickly on the first two points, but point three is where I felt led to kind of camp out on. Christ's word, point number three, Christ's word is our ruling authority. All right, verse let me read verse 19. It says this, whoever, that's whoever. It could be, it could be a, a vocational pastor like me. It could be someone leading a small group. It could be someone, a, a bit of uh, counseling that you give to someone interpersonally. So whoever, that's, that's all of us who minister the word in a formal or informal setting, whoever. Then annuls, that means like you say, ah, don't worry about it, loosens, ah, that's not binding anymore today. You don't have to think about that. Then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There's some kind of judgment there. There's, this is talking about eternal rewards. This is not talking about salvation necessarily. This is talking about rewards. So if, if you're telling people wrongly not to obey certain things in the scriptures, you're going to be considered least in the kingdom. Now, on the flip side of that coin, but whoever, there it is, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this kind of really hits me right between the eyes and, and grips my heart because this is what I do. I teach and preach the Bible. I'm going to be telling you something about tithing today that I'm going to be held accountable for. So what is a pastor's primary responsibility? It's to minister the word. What's an elder's responsibility is to minister the word, either preaching or teaching, or maybe some kind of biblical counseling. You're ministering the word. That's what my primary role is. Second Timothy 4, God charges Timothy and all pastors, preach the word. 
That's what I'm trying to do right now, by God's grace. In John 21, Jesus tells Peter, feed the sheep. That's another way of saying, minister the word. And the elders in Acts chapter 6, they said they focused on ministry of prayer and to the word. 1 Timothy 4, 11, God charges Timothy again, prescribe and teach these things. This is the primary role of a pastor or an elder. And in James 3, 1, Jesus' little brother says that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. So if you want to be a teacher of the Bible, there are some weightier things there as well. So as I, I talk to my wife and talk to others and, you know, just kind of shepherding our family through pastoral ministry life now. And, uh, you know, back in Washington when, we're, when I, was a, I was serving as a football coach and uh, I was a member of a church, Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, Pastor Joe Yoshihara was our pastor. And if something came up where I had a concern, I'd bring it up to him. And then I, he'd answer me back. He'd either agree or disagree and give me his reason. All right, I, I agree. Or most of the time I agreed, but sometimes I didn't agree. I said, well, okay, well, you're the pastor. You're going to be accountable to God. So now as a pastor, I no longer could have just an opinion. I would actually have a conviction. I got to actually believe what I'm talking about here because I'm prescribing and teaching this thing to the church family. And I want, I want to give you another note on what the role of pastors I, through the scriptures, I don't have any special authority over your lives, meaning I'm not here to tell you how to live your lives. I don't have that authority where this is how you raise your kids, this is how you do this, this is how I want you to invest your money. I'm not telling you that. This is how, you, this is how you go to vacation. I'm not telling you those things. Now, informally, I could tell you my opinion on some of these things, but I don't have that special authority over your lives, just so you know that. I'm just a sheep just like you guys, but my role is to feed the sheep. Where the authority comes is this, when I preach or teach the word of God. Because if you understand what the word is saying, who in fact is charging you? Is it Rocky? No, it's head of the church, Jesus Christ. Jesus rules through the Bible. That's why I'm trying to grow as a teacher. I'm trying to grow as a preacher so that you understand what the scriptures are saying. When appropriate, I would exhort, but I'm trying to explain what the scriptures mean so that you clearly hear from the Lord himself. And then it's up to you to obey. So it's not really me. God's word is where the authority is at. Now, under the same line, since we do accept the Bible as the authoritative word of God, under the new covenant, we're new covenant Christians for those of us who are in Christ. Why do we not keep all 613 laws? I bet you most of us don't know the 613 laws. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. That's, that's, there's 603 more, right? And there's dietary laws. Like, for example, the Jews are commanded not to eat pork and unclean meats or shellfish. There's things like that. There are uh, clothes law, uh, sundry laws are... Uh, miscellaneous laws which meant like you could not wear something made of two fabrics so if i wear my dry fit shirt or you wear your polyester that's against one of the 613 laws there's other things like you're not supposed to have a tattoo you're not supposed to uh, perhaps pierce your ears that's all in leviticus how come we don't a even know about them or b why don't we even obey them now that we know them you know, why, why, why is it that? And why do we sit there right now feeling comfortable? Yeah, I believe this is God's word. I'm, I'm trying to be obedient to the Lord. 
This is what I want to kind of explain, and we'll use tithing as, as the application, okay? And as Pastor David is teaching in his hermeneutics class, which is the art, uh, the science of or art of biblical interpretation, we're going to start up at the beginning of the year. I highly encourage all of us to be part of it. Context, context, context. That's absolutely critical. Do we understand the context when these things are written? Absolutely critical. And so I'm going to give a little bit of context how Moses or what the context was when Moses gave these laws. All right, 613 of them. So they're given under Moses. That's why they're called the Mosaic laws. All right, we'll start off right there. They were given to the people. God gave it to Moses to give to the people prior to entering the promised land. Keep in mind also, Israel were a group of slaves living as Egyptians, being ruled by Pharaoh. No tradition, no custom, no written Bible yet. They didn't have any of those things. And now God has transformed them into a nation. So keep that in mind. Slaves to a, a, a nation. That's a, big, that's a big transition there. God is shaping their identity and culture. And by the way, when they enter into the promised land, there's already pre-existing people. They're pagan people. Pagan means godless people living in Canaan. And how are they going to be distinct from those people? All right? So these are laws that were given to govern their everyday lives. These are laws that, that set their government system and their justice system. So keep that in mind as we, as we dive in. So now it's important to understand laws. Of the 613 laws, I think we could break it down to three categories. John Calvin, the great reformer, he did some great work on this. I was able to read up on his thoughts, and he's able to break it down to three areas. Moral laws, all right? And moral laws basically identify and reflect God's perfect and eternal character. Like, for example, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Don't have any graven image. You can't have a, a statue of Buddha or a Butsudan in your house and worship that and worship Jesus at the same time. God cannot deny himself because I'm one. There is no other gods beside me. We don't murder. God is the creator of life, and he made man and woman in his image. He cherishes life. We're called to cherish life. We're called not to murder. So we understand these things. Be faithful to your spouse. God is faithful, right? So this, this goes in alignment with his moral character. Second type of law, civil laws. Israel was under a theocracy. What that means is God ran the, the nation. We're under a democracy. We have a completely uh, different democratic system or governmental system. If you go to Israel today, they don't even have a theocracy. A theocracy does not even exist anymore. Okay? That was in context to as they were moving into the promised land. So they had laws such as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They didn't have police forces. They didn't have the local sheriff you know, to execute their laws and things like that. People had to keep law and order on their own. Can you imagine that? All right, so this is kind of how God designed it for people to maintain order. I mean, we talk about, you know, one of the laws is that if your children are too disobedient to you, you're supposed to stone them in the backyard. I mean, I don't think any of us have th thought to do that, right? So there's things like that in there where God was trying to set the line here. If anyone's caught, any man or woman's caught in adultery, we're supposed to stone them to death. We don't do that. None of us would do that. None of us would even think to do that. So that's the civil laws. And the third law are ceremonial laws. 
And they, the life of Israel revolved around the temple system. Animal sacrifices. I don't think anyone in here is sacrificing any more animals. Besides, there's, the temple doesn't even exist. I went to Israel last year. I can assure you the temple doesn't exist. But the Orthodox Jews are doing their best to resurrect the temple. But the temple doesn't even exist anymore. There's a, uh, there's a Muslim uh, mosque on top of the, uh, on the temple mount. You know, things like that. Or feasts. You could celebrate Passover, but I bet you many of us don't observe Passover, right? So those are the three divisions that John Calvin and other scholars have talked about. Type of laws. There's moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. And... Um, I want to just ask this question. Is tithing required in the new covenant? And what I mean by tithing, i got to be clear so that we understand what tithing means. Tithing literally means a tenth or 10%. So the practice of tithing, giving 10% of your income, of your produce to God, is, ten, is that the prescribed way of giving in the new covenant? Let me give you a little bit of history. It, where did tithing originate? The, the first part I could find in the Bibles in Genesis when uh, Abraham uh, gives a tenth to Melchizedek. All right, and, But the thing about that, that preceded the Mosaic Law. It was never a prescribed normative thing. That just describes what Abraham did. I think Jacob did the same thing. But where it becomes normative and prescribed is under Moses. And this is what Moses did. A tithe does mean 10%, but let me explain to you what Moses actually prescribed the nation of Israel. And I'll put, I think there's a slide behind me, but in Numbers 18, a tithe was required to support the Levites and the priests. These are the religious uh, servants of Israel, and they actually help administrate temple services. They actually help administrate some of the government. In Deuteronomy, that's one tithe, 10%. Another tithe in Deuteronomy 14.23 talked about giving a tenth to support the festivals. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Booths. So if you're doing your math, that's 20%. 10 plus 10 is 20, right? And then in Deuteronomy 14.28-29, another tithe was required every third year. So every three years you gave another 10% to support the orphans and the widows. Kind of a welfare system of Israel. Okay? So if you do the math, it worked out to be 23 and a third percent. That's what was really required if you're going off of the Mosaic laws. You should be giving 23 and a third percent if you're going off what was prescribed. Okay? So my question is, I'm trying to help us walk through this. And really, I'm trying to give us greater conviction for the word because we are people of the book. And how, how can we obey some? Oh, we don't. I'm trying to give, you, give us some confidence in this. So which category of the law does the tithe come under? Moral, civil, or ceremonial? I'd say it goes under all three. Why? Because the tithe support the ceremonial, the temple system. Why civil? Because it definitely supported the, 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 the government, the theocracy. But why moral? Because God is generous. He's given us, given us everything. We're called to be generous. So you say, Rocky, is the tithe the prescribed way of giving? Therefore, all that, with all that said, is the tithe the way to go? I'd say no, not according to the prescribed pattern under Moses. 
Like meaning, if I don't give 23 and a third, if I don't give a 10%, God is happy with me, or if I give less than 10%, God is not happy with me. That, that's not what I'm saying. However, I'd say yes, in principle, we are called to give. Absolutely we're called to give. And if you want to use a 10% as kind of a guideline to kind of help you out, get you started, Randy Alcorn calls it training wheels to kind of get you going, then God bless you, go for it. But that's not the binding thing where God is happy me, check, I gave 10%. Or God is not happy me because I didn't meet the 10% this week or this month. It's in principle, reflects God's character. God is generous. We're called to be generous, okay? So apply those things about tattoos, uh, your Under Armour clothes that you guys wear at practice. Apply all that stuff. Why are you going to enjoy your pork ribs after church today? Apply all those things. Is it moral? Is it civil? Or is it ceremonial? Simple. Context. Context, context, and that's going to help you understand the scriptures and live freer. You're going to live freer. And, here, and going on to our fourth and final point here. Why? Because Christ is after our hearts. Verse 20, I'm going to read this here. This is a critical, absolutely launching pad for everything that we do. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read that again. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, how well you are able to live, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's serious business right there, brothers and sisters. That's huge. How do, for I say, it's like Jesus is saying, listen up. Pay attention. This is critical. Absolutely critical. What does this mean? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What does this mean? I'm not going to read this for us, but as we go down uh, uh, Matthew 5 to verse 21 to 22, he says, you, you, none of you guys murder, right? And he goes, and, and you feel good about that, but guess what? Jesus says, if you've been angry with your brother or sister or call them a name like fool, you're liable to go to hell. All right, then you go to verse 23 to 26. He goes, if you have something to give, like a tithe or offering, comes to the church. If you have some beef with your brother or sister, no, settle that relationship that Pastor Kenny talked about. Work on that relationship and then come and give. And then moving down even further to verse 27, 28, he goes, you feel good that you don't commit adultery on your wife or your husband. But he goes, He's talking to the people. He goes, have you even looked at a woman or man with lust in your heart? If you have, you're guilty of adultery. So Jesus takes it to some external level that the Pharisees and the scribes are teaching, a bunch of doing. I want to live this way. I want to do this. I want to keep these rules. I want to live wisely. I want to live with these principles. If I do, check, 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 check. God will be happy with me. Jesus is going like this. It's destroying. He's reforming this whole way of thinking. He nah, it's not about the outside. It's about the heart. He takes it from one level of impossibility, like I got to live perfectly, to an even more level of impossibility of keeping it right in your heart. I know we've all been angry with people. Perhaps we've had lust in our heart for another. We're guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty. This points to how much we need the Lord. And I'm going to just take time to read Matthew 22. Jesus sums up what the, the law is about. Matthew 22, 
36 to 40, the Pharisees ask Jesus. They try to trap him. You know, they send some lawyer, some crafty uh, guy to ask him some sneaky questions. And Jesus just goes, all right, verse 36. They ask him, teacher, what is the, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Meaning, basically, if he chooses one or the other, then he's going to say, well, what about those other ones? It's kind of a trap. Verse 37, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Everything you got, you love God with. You love Christ with everything you got. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. There it is. Jesus, our Lord, makes it clear. Because the, the deal is this. The Pharisees and scribes were absolutely meticulous about external things. That's all they highlighted, the external things. Look at what I could do. Look what I, all the measurables of life. All the observable things. They're into metrics, you know what I mean? They could count up all kinds of things. And they emphasized the doing. They told the people how to live. They told the people how to live. They like that control. They like to tell people how to live. I'm not here for that. God has not called me to do that, nor am I wise enough to tell everyone how to live their lives. We're not about rule keeping. We're not about principalized living only. We're not only about living wisely. That's not what this deal is about. If you, that's all this is about, then you become a scribe or a Pharisee. It's all external. It's all external. Christ wants our hearts. And right now you may be asking, Pastor, what does this, how does this relate to giving? It has everything to give with giving. Because giving is motive, motivated by a love for Christ. It has everything to do with giving. You love Christ, you will give financially to Christ's work. You love Christ, you will serve Christ somehow with your gifts and opportunities he's given you. You love Christ, you're going to come take communion to remember the death and resurrection of Christ with one another. If you love Christ, you'll take it that way. If you don't love Christ, you'll take communion just as some another ritual. Pharisees would have been happy with that. Not pleased, not the Lord. If you love Christ, you'll see the Lord's day as just worship, however it looks. Hear me now. The Lord's day is an opportunity to worship the Lord, but it's the heart that matters. So I can't tell you how to do your Lord's day. I'm not here to do that. But I'm trying, as a pastor, I hope and pray I'm speaking what Jesus was speaking to the people on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. You have to love me in your heart. And I get it. Let's cut us some slack. None of us loves Christ perfectly. But Christ is calling for a genuine love, brothers and sisters. Genuine love. I mean, what would possess Matthew Christian to go to Africa, Right? How about Brother Dwight Ward in your 60s, right? To possess a man and sort of enjoying the rest of his days with all the work they did in law enforcement for all those years and he could spend on vacations 
riding a fat Harley. I mean, he could do all kinds of stuff. But no, I'm going to go to Okinawa and go serve. What will possess a man to do it? Now, I get it. These are unique callings. Not all of us are called to go overseas. Not all of us are called to be full-time vocational ministers. That's not what I'm saying. But what God has called you to do is what should possess you because you love Christ. That's, how, that's the deal. And so we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be all external. We don't want to be all that. And just a word of encouragement, Dwight. I mean, being in Japan, there's this, there's, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but homo no hito, like, you, is this a genuine person standing in front of me? That's what they want to see. I, the language may not be their brother, but they're going to feel your love for Christ. They're going to feel your love for Christ, and that's going to minister to them. It's going to open up their hearts, and then you're going to be able to preach gospel truth to them. And so... Let's be homonohito. Let's be a genuine person before Christ. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're competing for. That's what we're, what we're preaching for. So in our giving, in our serving, in our coming to the Lord's Day service, it's not under compulsion. It's not under obligation. It's because this is what else would I rather do? What else would I rather do? It's a way of life. And let's just kind of Tied into the greatest treasure of all. Is Christ your greatest treasure? That's why we're calling this the Treasure in Christ series. And as you notice, we're touching upon giving. And, and next week, we'll talk more about what does it actually look at. We'll, we'll get, kind of get more of the, the weeds of it the next two weeks. But have, have you noticed? What, we're talking about communion in, in Treasure in Christ. We're, we're, we're talking about uh, our righteousness exceeding those of the scribes and Pharisees during the stewardship series. Because we're ministering to the heart. We don't want just some act of giving. True, we got a, a first fruits giving on November 17th. I, I highly encourage you to pray to see what the Lord is moving to do. But it's about the heart. If your heart is not right, I don't want you to give it. Hold on to that money. Because I want you to receive the full rewards that's waiting for you if your heart is right in doing it. You follow what I'm saying? I'm trying to coach that part up right now. This is more important than anything else. Your giving will flow out of your love for Christ. And then along with that, you're investing in internal kingdoms. If you give out an obligation or at a compulsion, no rewards. I mean, it'll still be helpful for a church, but no rewards. I don't want that for any of us. I want us to experience we're investing full rewards into heaven. So as we, as we move on this series, it's about the heart. Treasuring Christ, that's why we called it treasuring Christ. Let's treasure Christ as the greatest treasure of our lives. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you for this word that you gave on the, on the sermon on the mount. Being there was incredible, and I could just see you just preaching with passion as you have so much compassion for the people who gathered around you, Lord. And perhaps many of the Pharisees were there eavesdropping and you knew exactly what you're doing. You're trying to reach them too. So Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray a prayer of blessing over the church fam. May we love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strengths. May we love you with everything you've given us, everything we got. That's all you want. You want everything. You, re you worry about the results. Dwight and, and Matthew, you'll take care of the results. But you call them to be faithful. You call us to be faithful because, out of our love for you. So, Father God, I pray, Lord, bless our people with a genuine, dominating love for you, Lord, where it controls all the areas of our lives, Lord. 
Wow, we want to enjoy all the fullness of what you have. We want to live a life abundantly, as Pastor Ron likes to talk about. Life abundant. And we want to store up as much treasure so that we can lay them at your feet in eternity someday. By your grace, let this happen. And but we also know it starts right in our hearts. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.